With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody. Hi, dear listeners. Uh, this is, well, me. Um, so I recorded a whole ruminant thing at very early this morning. Still dark out in, um, here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Sent it off to Adam, and Adam said, um, I'm paraphrasing, this sounds like garbage. And uh, we tried to figure out whether the backup was any better. Apparently, it's not. Um, so if bad audio, I mean, Adam's going to get it as good as he can get it. But if bad audio is not your bag, baby, um, just skip this one. It's fine. I don't even really remember what I said. Um, and I apologize for it. It's just part of being on the road. We're going to get me a new travel mic and all that. Um, I'm now recording this after I gave my talk, and I think it went pretty well. Um, and I'm now heading back to Washington, D.C. So uh, thank you for your tolerance and your patience. And um, I promise next week I'll sound better and I'll be more caffeinated. And until then, uh, here we go. Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Gerald Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so I'm uh, in the uh, Sioux Falls, Sheraton, in um, coincidentally enough, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I am looking out over the parking lot. And the funny thing is, is I could swear, I got to check, but like I could swear I was here, I want to say in 2020 when the, uh, when Trump was giving his acceptance speech at the Republican nomination and we were driving back across country and we stayed at the Sioux Falls Sheraton. Um, it was a really weird deja vu because that was a stressful long day. You pull into this hotel, all you want to do is have a drink and go to bed, walk your dogs. And uh, but anyway, I think that's where I am. I'm gonna check because it's just it's a funny, weird irony. Um, I'm here for a speech, the 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 speaking tour, speaking circuit stuff, um, which used to be a significant part of my you know, it wasn't a significant part of my income per se, but it was the difference between a good year and a bad year kind of thing. It's like it was a because I never counted on getting any. It was the sort of the the gravy for the year about whether I was going to, you know, go above expenses or whatever. Um, it's picking up a little bit. Um, it's so far mostly just sort of the punditry thing. Obviously, very few conservative groups um, you know, of any size 
want me anymore, which is fine. Um, uh, and you know, it's funny. I haven't I haven't done this kind of trip in a while. I simultaneously miss it and don't miss it. The people always end up being very nice, and it's fun to you know to riff. Um, I do like public speaking. Um, I'm better than I sound at it on this podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, the airports, all that kind of stuff, having to like really wallow in the, the numbers for the rank punditry so that you don't embarrass yourself by saying stuff, you know, by talking out your butt. Um, and then the grinding flight back home, that part, I don't, I don't miss that much. Um, anyway, it's good to be here. And, uh, I'm doing a lot of ums and eyeing because it, I was in, I'm in such a hurry. I have so much to do today. I got to write a G file. I got to give them a speech. I think I'm supposed to go to a lunch. I got to get on a plane, <laughs> go back home. Um, I got to do this remnant and there's a bunch of work stuff that I got to review. Um, you know, in such a race to get the coffee and get the computer set up and all that, that I didn't actually think even my normal three minutes about what I was going to talk about. Um, so let's just sort of go with, uh, the news stuff. Um, so I don't think it will surprise anybody that I obviously think that Donald Trump's a fraud. Um, I mean, in the business sense, I mean, I think in all sorts of other senses as well, but, uh, you know, people who grew up in New York city, um, I think it was Adam Davidson had this point on, um, Twitter the other day, Adam Davidson being a, a you know, a sort of business New York reporter. Um, he did one of those podcasts. I can't remember right now, but anyway, he, uh, he made the, what I thought was a very good point, which was that the, the people who covered in sort of, in sort of the business and entertainment world who covered Donald Trump for most of his life had a much better grasp on who the guy was than the political press did because the political press was so determined to hold on to its political prism. You know, it's, it's sort of the political frames, politi you know, the, the standard tropes and references in political reporting, which is in some ways completely understandable given that that's what the political press corps did for 200 plus years until that mold kind of completely broke. Um, but that, you know, the, the New York crowd who knew him just knew him better than the, the country did or the, the, the DC press corps. And I think that's right. And so I think it is you know, it's just transparently true, um, or obvious, um, not necessarily in the legal sense, cause you got to prove all that, but you know, I've just, I know enough people with firsthand or secondhand stories, um, about the way Trump did business, um, never mind the stuff that actually has been reported out over the years. So I think it's in, like, I would be stunned if Trump hadn't lied about the valuations of his stuff. He's admitted as much that he does that kind of thing. And so I think the Letitia James suit, you know, I think there's probably some there there. At the same time, I don't like it. Um, and not because she's, I mean, there are a lot of people saying, oh, he's, she's going after his kids. Screw that noise. Um, those kids know exactly what they're in for, what they're doing. They're all grown-up people with children of their own. Um, you know, I don't think they're suing Baron Trump or Tiffany Trump. They're signing fiduciary officers of his business 
Um, and so that part doesn't bother me at all. Frankly, I think Ivanka and Jared and, and Ude and Kuse, as Kevin likes to call them, um, the, those, the, those guys deserve, deserve everything that they get. They enriched themselves while they were in the White House uh, to the tunes of millions of dollars. Uh, they've enabled their father to do horrible things. And just because every now and then they're a check, um, usually an ineffectual check on him doing even worse things, does not make them heroes or victims in, in my book. They're accomplices. But still, I don't like the Letitia James suit because it, it just feels purely like a political thing. And, um, you know, she went into this saying that she was going to go after Trump. Um, you know, a long time ago, the banks that Trump allegedly defrauded were misled um, aren't suing Trump, right? So, I mean, like, I think it's called, I mean, I'll, I'll check with our niche podcast on the law stuff, but pretty sure it's called like a tort, right? You need, you know, properly speaking, there should be a victim. And her effort to say the, it's the people of New York or the, are the victims of Trump's behavior. I get it in theory, you know, I, I, and, and I really don't like the idea that rich and powerful people can get away with the kind of stuff that, you know, if you lied on your loan application for a mortgage, you could get in a lot of trouble. So, you know, I, I, I'm conflicted about it. At the same time, it just feels like Trump law. It feels like there's no way she would be doing this if it wasn't extremely popular with the Democratic base, particularly in New York, to embarrass and humiliate and string along Trump. And she's, Letitia James, the AG, is doing this for her political needs um, rather than the state's needs or the country's needs. And, um, and I guess this is, it's a good little metaphor now I think about it, um, and as the coffee starts to kick in, it's a good little metaphor for how um, the general dysfunction of both parties, which I've been writing so much about for so long, it's exhausting. Um, both parties benefit from being jackasses towards each other. Um, I mean, this is one of the things that makes the remnant feel so big sometimes is that um, Trump benefits from Tish James going after him. Tish James benefits from going after Trump. Uh, MSNBC benefits uh, because they get to do another, you know, 720 straight hours of the walls are closing in. Blue checkmark Twitter, which is like the real base of a lot of the Democratic Party and the media these days, it benefits because it gets to do, you know, uh, the Trumps are going to jail stuff and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I've seen people, I've seen like supposedly smart people talking about how like Ivanka and Trump and all these people are going to go to jail and over the Tish James suit. And the Tish James suit is a, is a civil suit. All the possible criminal stuff, um, she's referred to other agencies. And so it's, so it's all so performative and exhausting. And I don't have a lot of patience for it. Um, and it helps fuel the, you know, the, the witch hunt narrative and the persecution narrative. And I think that one of the things Americans have a real hard time grasping is that if we're going to use the analogy of witch hunts, um, 
sort of, sort of how do I put this? Inherent in the way we use the phrase witch hunt is this is sort of this implied assumption that there are no witches. Um, wow, we're going to get some serious storms coming in. I'm watching the skies turn dark here. Um, if you hear a huge bang and then a giant sucking sound, and I stop talking as soon as I got pulled out the window. Um, yeah, so like, you know, when Trump says it's a witch hunt, when Bill Clinton used to say it's a witch hunt, um, the implication sort of going back to the, the, the what's his name, um, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, is that the, the victims of the witch hunt are all purely innocent. I mean, it's like darkness at noon or something, right? And the, f- the far more common thing in life is that most witch hunts, not all, right? To you, when I say witch hunt here, I just mean uh, overzealous, monomaniacal uh, investigation or persecution or prosecution of an individual. Um, most witch hunts are, whether they're right or wrong, are aimed at actual witches. Bill Clinton was guilty. Donald Trump's guilty. Um, uh, you know, the, the, you know, what was it, um, Eli Lake, um, for his big piece for commentary, really the big deep dive into the Russia stuff. Um, I think the headline was something like, uh, framed but guilty. You know, Trump did all sorts of terrible stuff about Russia. He just didn't do the stuff that the media and the Democrats were obsessed with. Um, or at least not most of it. And, um, and I think the same thing goes on here. Of course, Trump is being singled out, and I don't like it. I don't like it as a matter of principle and as a matter of theory. I don't like deviations from the law in order to fuel populism. And I just, I wish the left, you know, these sort of very elite, effete, liberal commentators who, not along with me, when I talk about the dangers of populism on the right, are utterly blind to the dangers of populism on the left. I mean, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is a populist. We don't get, you know, the one person, we don't get the, the, the Tea Party, or not the Tea Party, the Occupy Wall Street stuff without populism of the left. We don't get, we don't get this lawsuit against Donald Trump without populism on the left. Um, and I, by populism, I just mean mass anger not channeled into fruitful arguments or, or into democratic mechanisms or legal mechanisms. Well, I guess there's some legal mechanisms. But you get the point. Um, um, you know, I've said this and written this a bunch of different times, but like, if you really want to understand my core attitude towards politics, is I generally don't like enthusiasm, um, and I think that, and I mean that in the sort of political theory sense, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, I'm enthusiastic about politics; I follow it for a living. But I, I don't like big crowds. I don't like when people show up and get all worked up about politics. I remember once going to give a talk, give a speech, I think it was at Bowdoin College, one of those kinds of schools. And um, I saw this bunch of kids coming back from a young Republican rally. And um, there was this sort of semi-chubby kid in glasses with perfectly creased khakis blue blazer, red tie, you know, the official official uniform for young Republicans back then. And 
he was coming back with a whole bunch of people and he passed a friend and he just shouted at the top of his lungs, Liddy Dole was awesome. And I just, what do you young people say? Cringe? I mean, I just, it was like, I just don't like enthusiasm. I don't like women wearing female genitalia hats and screaming um, in large numbers. Um, and I think an enormous amount of politics on the left and the right is geared towards pandering towards the people who constantly need to up the dosage on, uh, you know, the sort of passion that they're, they're drawing from politics. And I just don't think that's a healthy process. Uh, on the other hand, okay, so while I think the Tish James things is mostly political theater um, um, or political prosecution or whatever, um, I think the Mar-a-Lago stuff is real. Again, I don't, look, I, I don't really care as much about the legal part of it as a lot of people do. Uh, this is one of my great enduring peas, which is going to become just, I'm sorry, a permanent theme on this podcast. When you, when you let lawyers dominate the political conversation, as we do all the time, the second any political controversy gets close to criminality or illegality, um, issues of judgment and morality get swept away and replaced with, um, you know, is there enough evidence? Is there a smoking gun? Um, innocent until proven guilty and all that stuff. And that's not what should be determinative in politics. That's a, that's a real, like whether or not someone broke the law should not be the highest standard uh, for judging political content. That should be the lowest standard. It should be the ante into the games. Like you don't break the law. Um, and the thing about, so like, again, I am torn about this uh, idea of indicting and prosecuting Trump. I, when, when the argument is made well in the pro column, I get pretty close to persuaded. When the argument is made in the anti-column, I get pretty close to persuaded. I sincerely think that the best possible, best possible outcome because I don't think Trump in an orange jumpsuit is going to happen. Um, the best possible outcome would be some sort of negotiated pardon for Trump, where he implicitly or explicitly admits he broke the law, but he's not going to be prosecuted. Uh, Biden and, the, and Merrick Garland uh, put pressure on um, Georgia and New York AGs and wherever else to go along with the pardon. And, um, and in exchange, Trump agrees never to run for public office again. And it would have to be sort of in writing and the pardon would have to be written. You can make a pardon as conditional as you want. I think that's, to me, because again, the legal issue isn't the thing. It's the, the fact that he's unfit for office. He would be really bad for the country if he were in office. He would be terrible for the Republican Party if he were nominated again. I don't think he can win again, but I don't, I don't rule it out the way a lot of people do. Um, but my point is, is like, what you want to do is figure out some sort of arrangement that lets as many of the truly non-insane, sort of non-QAnon type Trump voters and Trump boosters, you give them a little room to save face, to sort of... Um, 
you know, calm down and get back in the fold because they're Americans too. Um, and so many of these, so many of the sort of Adam Kinzinger kind of, uh, it's probably unfair to say Adam Kinzinger, but you know, so many of these sort of, uh, you know, Jamie Raskin type conversations about how the country needs to heal or even Biden stuff about how the country needs to heal and unify um, is so contradicted by their view that that millions of people who adore Donald Trump are somehow irredeemable, you know, deplorable, whatever, um, is really problematic. And while I think a lot of the views of, of, of certainly a chunk of Trump supporters, no, by no means the 74 million people who voted for him, um, are, some of their views are deplorable. Well, that's just transparently obvious. Most of them are not. You know, I just know enough of these people who are, you know, they're decent people who I think are very misled or confused about a bunch of stuff. Spare me the, you know, the emails about how condescending that sounds. Talk to a lot of these people. Their sources of news are very flimsy. Their, their trust in inconvenient facts is non-existent. I, I, I'm utterly confident in, in, in how I'm describing all this to the extent that the words coming out of my face make any sense at all. Um, but a pardon would piss off everybody. It would be a real profile and courage for Biden. It would, it would cement his historical legacy of being a unifying figure, which so far he's done very little to back up since his inaugural. Um, he talks a big game about unifying and then he does politics like a pretty divisive president. Um, I'm not saying it's dumb uh, necessarily because he divides the country in a way where he gets a larger share of the electorate. Um, but he has not been a unifying figure. Um, and people who disagree with me on that tend to think that he's been right about a lot of things. It's sort of like this incredibly annoying both, you know, charge about both sides, both sidesism, which I get hurled at a lot. And frankly, I'm guilty of quite a bit. I get the complaint about both sidesism because I used to make those kinds of complaints all the time. And I will again from time to time because, you know, uh, it depends on the context. But I used to, used to, the, the, the both sides, you know, both sides are a bad thing, used to annoy me a lot, whether it came from libertarians or incredibly squishy, moderate, centrist types or very, or Marxists for that matter. I mean, it's funny how I've come to really appreciate once you get, um, once you sort of, I, I'm never going to unironically use the phrase red pilled, but like once you sort once the scales fall from your eyes a little bit about sort of tribal loyalty to one party or one side, um, it just becomes much easier to see the problems with 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 both sides. Unless, as is the case with you know Jen Rubin types, there are some people who are too weak um, to stay outside of the tribal system, so they just join the other tribe. Um, or I shouldn't say too weak, though it fits too thirsty, um, too ambitious, uh, whatever label you want to put on it. And so they just, they argue the same way they did when they were on the right. They argue that way on the left. Um, and, but if you, if you can keep your wits about you and sort of stay on the outside of all of it, you really, I, I have newfound respect for the sort of the basic both sides kind of argument and i can't remember how i 
got on this though. I'm saying something about both sides. Um, so this is this is why I need like an intern to just sit here and say, "Oh, you were talking about X." I cannot for the life of me remember. I apologize. Um, it'll burst into my consciousness in a few minutes, and I'll just shout it out, sort of like "Look, cows!" kind of thing out of nowhere. But I was talking about at some point in this endless Mobius strip of Lageria. Um, I was talking about the Mar-a-Lago stuff, which, oh yeah, I, so it was like the legal part of it, um, I go back and forth on, but on the, um, the sort of statesmanship side, the morality side, the logic side, the fitness for office side, I guess is the place where I care most about it. Um, I think this actually is kind of important. Um, you know, the, the thing that drives me crazy about listening to Trump, who has had a million different positions on all of this, and the, the, the way in which he changes his positions, and people who defended him taking those positions as if they were the real positions, um, the way they don't get upset when Trump pulls the rug out from them under them almost every day is really frustrating. <laughs> um, like you should be angry at the guy who makes you look like a fool and an idiot. Um, and I never understood how people in politics could hold their own integrity so cheap that when they are beclowned by the person that they are working for or defending pro bono, um, I can never understand how they don't care. Like, I just don't, I don't get it. Like, um, anyway, so the, the thing that drives me crazy about the way Trump talks about it, at least sometimes, right? Cause he keeps changing his position is he talks about declassification. First of all, well, two things about it. One, he talks about declassification as if it is a monarchical thing, right? That it is sort of like, like the right of Prima Nocta in Braveheart. Um, it, and um, as the sovereign, it's just something that he has and he has sort of a mystical ability to use it. I mean, he said the other night that he could just thinking it could declassify things and we can put a pin in that for the moment. I understand the argument about the, the theory of executive privilege that would support that. But that's not how Trump thinks about it. Trump just thinks about how he has these sort of monarchical powers. And he thinks that because he was president, um, he retains some of those um, rights and privileges in ways, again, that a former monarch would talk about them. A member of royalty would talk about them, not like as a legal matter, because he doesn't understand the legal stuff at all. Um, which is part of why I think he's so unfit for office. You don't want someone to be president of the United States to think the job is to be king. Um, but second, and I know I've probably said this before, but like the thing I just I, I find both hilarious and infuriating is so many of the supposed explanations or excuses that he's clearly lying about would be, it would be worse if he was telling the truth. And, um, you know, like, I declassified these things 
so I could bring them home to Mar-a-Lago because I'm a pack rat and I want to have a museum. Or I declassify these things because I, I want to read them in bed. Um, uh, he declassified them because he likes to take work home with him and all that kind of stuff. How to explain this without losing my mind? Yes, there are a lot of things that are classified that shouldn't be. We're not talking about those things here, right? We're talking about like really classified things. At least that's what we've been led to believe. So put it this way. The codes to the nuclear football, right? We all understand why those are classified, right? They're classified because the information is really dangerous if it falls into the wrong hands. It's, it's, the, it's the national security information that is the reason why they're classified. They're not, it's not national security information because it's classified, right? It's like, um, we don't try to keep this stuff secret because we try to keep this stuff secret because it's really important. We, it's not really important because we keep it secret. And so when Trump says, good thing I declassified all of this, he talks about it as if that made it no longer important to keep secret. Um, you know, like, again, nuclear football codes, right? Or the design of our most advanced warheads. Uh, um, or the, you know, the protocols that bypass our, um, you know, our, our, our cyber, you know, security system in the United States. Um, if, if the president declassifies that stuff, France still wants that. China still wants that. England still wants that. Russia still wants that. There's, there's, being declassified doesn't make it any less important or vital uh, national security secret. Um, it just makes it easier to get. And so the idea, and that's why there's a process to declassifying things. When George W. Bush declassified the presidential daily brief, that brief after 9-11, he first had to submit it to a process to take out all sorts of stuff about sources and methods to make it possible to release to the public. Um, when you, at the highest end, when you do, I mean, we, and Klon can talk this stuff obviously far better than I can, but like at the highest end, when you declassify stuff, you get various members of agencies or various experts from, you know, from various departments of the government to look at it and to, and to chase down all the different ways things could go bad if this information got out and then redact stuff or recommend that they don't release it at all, um, et cetera. Saying, yeah, you know, the Giants are playing tonight, so I'm going to take all of this stuff up to the bedroom where the housekeepers can come and go and all that kind of stuff, and I'm going to spread it across my bed, and I'll look at it, whatever. Which, again, I don't believe he took work like that home with him ever or almost ever. Uh, I don't think it's true, but if it were true, that would be worse, right? Um, taking this stuff down to a country, I mean, I, I, like Bob Barr, I'm sorry, Bob, William Barr, Bill Barr, um, I got all sorts of disagreements with him, but he's been pretty good on this stuff. And, you know, he says, people talk about this raid being unprecedented. It's also unprecedented for the president of the United States to take a whole bunch of classified information and keep it in a country club. And, um, and so like, there is this weird sort of the way Trump talks about it. He has he's a really great example of magical thinking where, you know, remember how he used to say that 
how he said in the deposition once that he, he weighed, he gauged his net worth based upon how he felt in the morning. It's very romantic in the classical sense, right? Um, when the FBI took those evidence pictures and Trump tried to say, look how irresponsible the FBI is with all this classified stuff, splaying it out on the floor and taking pictures of it for the whole world to see. And then he says, good thing I declassified. Well, first of all, they weren't actually putting any actual information out for all the world to see. Those were just the cover pages or the folders for the classified information. Um, but let's say for whatever incredibly stupid reason, the FBI accidentally released pictures of the stuff that Trump had with the information showing, like the, 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 su the summary pages from some, you know, the, the nuclear profile of North Korea or uh, the latest on one of our uh, experimental warheads or whatever. Let's say the FBI actually released that in an evidence photo. Does the fact that Trump allegedly or for real declassified it now render that information no longer interesting to anybody? That's how he talks about it. And I just find it fascinating that his brain can work that way, really, whether he's being honest or being dishonest. Either way, it's sort of bizarre and fascinating and a creepy, you know, if you look too deep into the abyss, the abyss will look into you kind of way. Um, what else? Um, I'm not exactly sure which way the G file is going today, uh, but today is maybe one of those days where I just cannot honor my promises not to um, do double duty and talk about stuff in the G file that I talk about here just because I only have so many hours before I have to file the thing. It's difficult to do from the plane, time zones. Um, you know, I don't want to sound like John Belushi um, apologizing to Carrie Fisher and Blues Brothers. Um, well, what else? Um, oh, yeah. So like this Atlantic piece from last weekend. Um, like... I was two lines about it. So, all right, so the Atlantic ran this piece saying, in effect, that um, I think the headline was uh, dividing athletics by sex doesn't make any sense. And basically the whole piece, which hung on, I think, only two anecdotes and a few quotes from mostly like sociologists. I don't want to be too unfair here. Um, um, but it was just an incredibly bad piece of work. I think the Atlantic should actually be legitimately embarrassed. And um, look, <laughs> I'm the first to concede there are plenty of women who are far better athletes than me and would be far better athletes than me at, in, when I was in my prime and far better athletes than me if I'd spent my life taking athletics seriously. Um, all of those things are true. You know, we're talking about distributions here. But it's just simply a fact that male advantages in, in strength and speed are real. And her argument, and it's funny, so this goes back, maybe we'll find it and put it in the show notes. My wife, the fair Jessica, reviewed a book called The Frailty Myth, I want to say like 22 years ago, for the uh, Weekly Standard. May she rest in peace. And... Um, um, it was 
the frail the argument of the frailty myth was that the disparities between men and women, someone wrote a whole book on this. The disparities between men and women were all due to the lack of nurturing and support and um, uh, and 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 social resources for women and athletics, and that if women simply were encouraged from a young age the way men are and given access to the same sort of institutions and resources the way men are, um, the disparities in strength, speed, all these kinds of things, um, athletic performance would all just go away. And um, in a sense, it's a really wonderful sort of Rousseauian or Marxian kind of uh, you know, way of thinking, even though there's no basis in the biological claims in Marx or Rousseau, just in the sense that we were all born blank slates, right? That we were all born um, perfectly equal and it's just the external social arrangements and conditions that explain all disparities, um, inequities, and the rest. And of course, that's just, just, it's just nonsense. It's a lot like that that piece I talked about with Sarah on the remnant um, from the New York Times a month or so ago about uh, you know this woman trying to claim that there's no such thing as the maternal instinct and um, the actual piece you, defenders will say it was much more nuanced uh, I think critics have the upper hand and just say it was much more convoluted and incoherent. Um, and if you want to say there are parental instincts and they're expressed differently by men and women, I'm totally fine with that. That's true. Um, but that's not exactly what she was saying. She was basically saying that whoever, I can't remember the name of the person who wrote the piece, she was saying basically that, uh, you know, the, that, that age old, terrible, patriarchal um, conspiracy whereby the pale penis people get together and decide we're going to tell women they have to have maternal instincts uh, um, in order to keep women in their place is why we think, is why the maternal instinct is in fact a myth. And look, it is, as, as Sarah and I discussed, it's absolutely true. There are, there are some women who have a real hard time to get attached to their baby when they're born. Um, postpartum depression is real. Believe me, I, I, I know enough about it firsthand from various places. Uh, I have nothing but sympathy for all that. It's not anecdotal. It's real, right? But like, it's fine. Every, you know, rules, I mean, populations of millions or billions, particularly billions and billions over time, they're always going to be, it's going to, it's always going to be like one of those scatter graphs, right? There's always going to be outliers, exceptions to the rule, um, but if you're going to extrapolate from the exceptions to the rule, a general rule that contradicts the real rule, you've got to get called on it. And the simple fact is, is that maternal instinct is a thing. You cannot watch a nature documentary without big chunks, at least about mammals, um, <laughs> where, you know, the maternal instinct is a, isn't a major plot driver, you know, the the bear mom that's got to like protect its cubs from the other grizzlies and everything else. Um, with, a, with very few exceptions in the mammalian world, in the primate world, 
um, you know, moms, mothers are the primary uh, protectors and caregivers of offspring. And it's amazing to me how all the people who um, love to insist evolution is true, evolution is real, anyone who denies or is skeptical about evolution is a troglodyte and, and a fool and blah, 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 blah. And look, I think evolution is real, uh, but uh, I think evolution is a capacious and broad enough thing that people can ask interesting questions about it without denying it fundamentally or believing that the earth is only 6,000 years old. But the same people who do the evolution is real and you people are evolution deniers and all that kind of stuff are the ones who are trying to say that biological sex is a social construct and that the mater maternal instinct is a social construct. And it's just all so freaking hypocritical and also so freaking dangerous. And, and, and I guess this is the thing, maybe I'll write about this. This is the thing that drives me nuts about it is that we have all these people who are preening and, and, and um, self-congratulating about their adherence to the truth, right? And their opposition to the big lie and that they believe in truth or truth and democracy or truth, democracy, and science, all these kinds of things. And look, I believe in truth. I believe in democracy. I believe in science. That's not my point. Nor is it my point that they're wrong about the things that they're complaining about. The big lie about the election being stolen is incredibly pernicious and dangerous. Uh, the anti-vax stuff was pernicious and dangerous. Um, but if you're going to put yourself up on a pedestal saying you're a champion of truth, you kind of need to be consistent on it. And you need to be consistent on it, not just for, you know, because to avoid being a hypocrite or anything like that, but because you give, per when people see your hypocrisy, when they see the double standard, when they see you saying on the one hand, it is settled science about climate change, that there's no room for debate anymore. Everyone has to agree, not just with the, the diagnosis, but with the prescription, that climate change is real, it's dangerous, it's an existential threat, and if you, if you disagree with it, you're a quote-unquote denier, right? Fine. But then if you go off and you say, well, you know, like, the concept of biological sex um, is a myth or a social construction or that, with, that men can have babies, uh, you may think that these are completely different social projects, intellectual projects, political projects, and that there's no hypocrisy in there at all. People have an amazing capacity to reconcile their cognitive dissonance. That's fine. You may think you're being utterly honest and sincere. And you may be utterly honest and sincere. Wrong, but utterly honest and sincere. That's fine. But to the observer who doesn't necessarily want you to be right or share your views or uh, align with the same projects as you, he's going to say, what about the fact that you say um, men can breastfeed? Uh, you know, what about the fact that you say that if we just gave a few more girls to female weightlifters, they'd be able to bench press as much as male weightlifters? Um, 
So don't, you know, they're going to say, you know, don't come at me with this, your anti-science stuff when you believe that crap or when you publish that crap in the Atlantic. And, you know, and this is the great advantage of whataboutism. I hate whataboutism as a political argument. It is never a refutation of um, someone else's point. Like, you know, if I say, Donald Trump is a Donald Trump lied, right? Which is a very easy thing for me to say. You fill in the blank, fill in the rest later. But Donald Trump lied, and people say, well, "What about Bill Clinton?" Yeah, Bill Clinton lied too. How is Bill Clinton lying a refutation of the charge that Donald Trump lied? It's not. What people don't seem to understand is that what aboutism is basically a way to concede your debating opponent's point but change the subject to something else. And um, so I hate it as a rhetorical tactic um, if you're actually debating a specific point. But it actually provides a pretty good service of illuminating um, the inconsistencies and hypocrisies of people making sweeping claims. If you claim that you know you believe all you believe in is pursuing the truth wherever you find it, and then someone can point out to all sorts of untruths in other political contexts that you supported, defended, or turned a blind eye to, well, that's at least interesting, right? And um, and I'm so like this is one of the reasons why I like it, like when the Atlantic runs pieces like this. And then I send somebody a really good Atlantic piece about debunking anti-vaccine stuff. They're going to say, well, isn't this the same magazine that said that, you know, there's, there's, there's no physical differences between men and women? And even though there are different authors published in different editions of the thing, um, they'll have, a, you know, they'll have a point. I mean, not the point. that doesn't refute the merits of the anti, of, of the article about, the anti-vaxxers being wrong, but it undermines the ability of the Atlantic to persuade people about the vaccination stuff when it is running this other garbage. And, um, and the same thing goes when you talk about all sorts of other abstractions, whether it's science, truth, democracy, whatever. You know how many sort of earnest Gitchigoo liberals in 2016 made very similar arguments about overturning the electoral college vote? Um, in the House to give the election to Hillary Clinton? Quite a few. And we don't talk about them as if they're traitors and anti-constitutionalists and, and insurrectionists. And I understand why. But if you're somewhat, and, and look, I, I, I think the people who tried to overturn the election in 2020 were profoundly wrong. My point is, is that if you want to make the case that they were profoundly wrong, you need to be consistent about other people who were profoundly wrong about it, even if they're on your own team. And this is the thing I was getting at about the both sidesism stuff. It's just I, um, I'm just just so much more comfortable than I thought I would be, being alienated and pissed off and exasperated by both sides. And that doesn't mean both sides are equal. That doesn't mean both sides have the exact same sins and the exact same context or any of that kind of stuff. But as I, you know, as I wrote my LA Times column on immigration, this idea that the only villains on immigration are Republicans is just hot garbage. Democrats have been demagoguing 
um, on immigration for years. Democrats have wanted the issue, basically in part because of their assumptions about how demography is destiny, destiny and non-white people will always vote Democratic. They weren't explicitly, you know, not the way the sort of some of the racist guys talk about it, you know, importing voters and trying, you know, it wasn't replacement theory per se, but my God, if you, if you believe in replacement theory and you read some of the stuff that well-intentioned um, or very partisan Democrats, well-intentioned liberals or very partisan Democrats said in the early 2000s about, about immigration, you can see why someone would, who believed in replacement theory would, would find evidence in there. There are all sorts of quotes that those, those goons use to say, you know, you know, what are you talking about? Replacement theory is a myth or replacement theory is racist. It's, 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 it's a description of what the Democrats are doing. I mean, and again, I don't, I'm not an adherent of replacement theory. I am just saying that the, the left gets a lot of the reactions that it then gets inflamed and outraged by because of things that the left does. And so does the right. I mean, and again, this is, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to keep score here because <laughs> I don't care if either side wins in a certain sense in the partisan context. Um, but, you know, the whole point of believe, if you're going to invoke these grand abstract concepts, it can't be selectively. You can't be claiming to be a grand arbiter of truth and science and democracy in these situations, but not in those situations. And I think one of the things that the left is just going to have, and, and, and mainstream liberals too, who are not part of the sort of postmodern campus left, but they give it so much more deference than they should. They let it shape the way they frame questions. They do gut checks about whether they're going too far right by asking those kinds of people, you know, what they think about various issues. And big chunks of the of the sort of intellectual left basically think if you manipulate words enough, you manipulate reality. And I mean, that's what a lot of that sort of postmodern, you know, Derek Bell stuff that gave birth to critical race theory and all that. That's what the Marcuse. Frankfurt School stuff, a lot of that was just about, you know, playing with words until it uh, changes the social construction of reality. And say what you will about those kinds of projects, and I have a lot to say, um, they're not grounded in concepts of truth. I mean, I have books at home, books of essays from leading, you know, you know uh, critical theorists about, you know, the problem with truth and like they, I had professors in college who would always, you know, go on little lectures in the margins of my papers if I ever capitalized truth, because there is no capital T truth and yada, yada, yada. And that's an interesting literary, political, philosophical argument. But if you let it inform your understandings of things like biology um, or American history in the form of the 1619 Project and that kind of stuff, um, it's going to be difficult for you to be taken seriously when you wheel around and say, you know, the big lie and the war on truth are outrageous because they're being done by Republicans. Um, all right, I'm sort of done because I feel like maybe I'm, I'm really not making my point here, but I'll try to do it in writing.
Oh, one thing. Sorry, uh, Adam is texting me to see if I got in to record this thing. All right. And I have. Maybe Adam will just cut me saying this. Um, there was an interesting comment on uh, in the comments <laughs> in, uh, from the remnant I did with um, uh, um, Nick Eberstadt, which a lot of people liked, and I'm glad they liked it because I'm a huge Nick Eberstadt fan. And, um, you know, he's one of these guys who knows more than like the next 10 people um, about a given subject. And he is just wildly more humble about what can be done with his knowledge or how reliable the knowledge is. Um, he's just a very interesting dude. Um, but um, I made some point about technocrats thinking that if they just had enough knowledge, if they, had just, if they just had enough power to go along with their knowledge, they would be able to um, fix everything. So I got this uh, comment from a listener, Ned M. And he says, Jonah, you dismiss the technocrats of the New Deal and the Great Society in one breath, but isn't there some substantive difference between works programs of the former which tended towards straightforward projects and the opportunity projects of the latter, which were more training and volunteer driven. He goes on. Um, I think it's a, and he makes some interesting points. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I think Ned makes a very good point. The great society and the new deal were very different things. And I kind of feel like I should do one of those interstitial things just on this point, since I have done so much work in the past on the great society and the new deal. Very briefly, the New Deal was born of, of philosophical pragmatism. Um, the Oglethorpe University speech that FDR gives, I want to call it 1931, where he calls for bold, uh, consistent experimentation uh, was to get out of the Great Depression, um, was directly influenced and alluding to sort of the, the pragmatism of William James and, to a lesser extent, John Dewey. Uh, there was a big fuss about how FDR was a student of James's. I don't think he absorbed that much of it. But the, the eggheads in the brain trust around FDR liked to invoke James and pragmatism a lot, um, as did um, a lot of the boosters for the New Deal, as well as the boosters for what was going on in Russia in Italy in the early 1930s, um, lots of, this is the age of experimentation, you know, um, and experimentation had a specific resonance with, with pragmatism. The other big influence of the New Deal was um, a Jamesian idea, which was the moral equivalent of war. Um, FDR campaigns as a... Um, um, as I remember, he's a Wilson retread. Um, he worked in the Wilson administration. He promises explicitly to use the techniques used in the First World War to fight the war overseas to fight the Great Depression at home. And um, people just cannot get their heads around, it drives me crazy, how militarized the New Deal was. Uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, again, an idea borrowed straight from William James, was uh, expressly militaristic. Um, the kids woke up to revelry. They wore uniforms. They were drilled by uh, former mem former army sergeants. Uh, they went to sleep to taps. 
They were a forest army, is the phrase William James used. One of the most famous civilian conservation corps camps was called Camp William James. Um, the, the National Recovery Administration was militaristic through and through. It was run by uh, General Hugh Johnson. And you always have to, if you're giving a speech about General Johnson, you have to say Hugh Johnson very carefully or it sounds like you're working blue. Um, uh, the, the different uh, parts of the NRA and the associations um, were guided by this thing called or the insignia and the sort of um, symbol of the NRA was the Blue Eagle, which both Johnson and FDR said should be seen like the insignia of a soldier, this distinguished friend from foe. Uh, the biggest parade in American history up until that point was the NRA Army, the NRA March in New York City, where much like what uh, Edward Bellamy talked about, I was talking about last week about industrial armies, um, the arm, the, the parade was divided up into uh, industrial uh, units, you know, the, the janitorial corps, the steamworker corps, they all wore different uniforms or different insignia marching as, as if they were in a military parade, they had a military reviewing stand. You had kids who had to take oaths to the Blue Eagle. Uh, Jacob McJed, this guy that George Will and I are the only ones who keep the memory of alive, um, was sentenced to jail. He ultimately got out of it for um, charging um, a little less to dry clean a suit um, um, than the NRA codes allowed. Um, I hate to say this uh, to use Eagles fans, but the Philadelphia Eagles are named after the Blue Eagle. Anyway, I can do this all day. Um, the New Deal was very much considered a domestic um, moral equivalent to war um, militarization effort uh, because it was believed by social engineers, which was still a not negative term in those days, um, that the military had figured out the best way to engineer human beings most efficiently. And, um, and so I agree that work is, that this idea of work being good, um, uh, that you know, work makes you strong, work makes you patriotic, work makes you healthy, um, uh, was a big part of the New Deal and paying people just to do work was a big part of the New Deal. And, I think there's a lot of merit to the, I, let me put it this way, I'm not a big fan of the New Deal. I am one of those retrograde guys who think it was the New Deal that made the Great Depression great. Uh, it was the longest depression ever in part because of the, the, the policies that we put into place that prolonged it. Um, not even Paul Krugman um, will argue that the New Deal itself ended the Great Depression. What he does is he claims that World War II was a was a New Deal program, and um, and that's what ended the Great Depression. And we're not going to get deep into those weeds, but so like I can separate. I, I think Ned's point about just straight up honest work programs is a very good one. Um, as for the Great Society, you know the 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 chief difference. Um, I, I don't, don't want to get too glib on this, and I also don't want to go too long because we're also already at an hour. Um, is uh, the Great Society was much more 
utopian. It was much more, um, how, to, how to put this? I know this is a bad verbal tick of mine where I say how to put this, but it gives me a sense to like think for a second. Um, but the, the reason I do it is it gives me a chance to think for a second. So I, I gave a speech on this a couple of times on um, how basically the Great Society, when you strip it all away, at least a big part of it was just simply about love. Um, and I mean that kind of kind of literally. Like the Great Society was this, the thing that Great Society and the New Deal share um, is this idea of fostering community through centralized government. And this is one of the reasons why I have such contempt for the magic the NatCon crowd is that they learn no lessons from history about any of this stuff. Um, you know, it's not like the great society and the new deal lacked for resources or political will to foster a national sense of community. And you could argue that the new deal did for a time. I'm not sure I buy it. People think that the new deal, it's weird. You know, like Howard Dean used to talk this way about how like the 1930s and the 1960s were these times of great national unity. And they weren't. They were massive. 1930s and obviously the 1960s were times of massive national strife where you had race riots, labor riots, um, all sorts of clashes in the streets um, in all sorts of ways. The reason why a lot of baby boomer liberals remember the 30s and the 60s as time of national unity is because they were in time, these were times of unchecked liberal power. And they're nostalgic for that, and they call it unity. But the one thing that they just shared was this idea of, anyway, they shared this idea of community um, and of, of sort of how the, you know, the government can love you. So there's a guy, Richard Goodwin, uh, who I believe is like the investigator guy in the quiz show movie. Um, he's also the wife of, Dor not the, wife, the husband of Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, and he was an LBJ speechwriter. And... There was a time in the mid-1960s when everyone was like, what does the Great Society mean? What does the Great Society mean? You know, uh, LBJ wouldn't give a great definition of it other than, like, I think, one speech. Um, like, what is, the, what is the point? And um, um, so in the summer of 1965, uh, Goodwin, who was a speechwriter for LBJ, um, offered what the New York Times called, quote, the most sophisticated and revealing commentary to date on the question, what is the Great Society? Uh, his answer lay in the need for the state to give, quote, meaning to individuals and, quote, make the world a more enjoyable and, above all, enriching place to live in, unquote. The great society, Goodwin explained, quote, is concerned not with the quantity of our goods, but with the quality of our lives. And then he goes on to say, we will do all these things because we love people instead of hate them. Because you know it takes a man who loves his country to build a house. I'm sorry. I apologize. This isn't a good one. This is Johnson talking. We will do all of these things because we love them, because we love people instead of hate them. Because you know it takes a man who loves his country to build a house instead of a raving, ranting demagogue who wants to tear one down. Beware of those who fear and doubt and those who rave and rant about the dangers of progress, Johnson railed. Americans, he said, are not presented with a choice of parties. Americans are not presented with a choice of liberalism and conservatism. Americans are faced with a concerted bid for power by factions which oppose all that both parties have supported. It is a choice between the center and the fringe, between the responsible mainstream of American experience 
and the reckless and rejected extremes of American life. Sounds kind of familiar. Um, anyway, the, the point I was trying to get at, and it's not exactly the right quote for this, but is that the Great Society had was so much gauzier um, in part because I think the at least those 1930s technocrats, the you know, Rexford Tugwell and um, Stuart Chase and, and all those guys, uh, they came out of an experience which saw um, these huge, massive gains from industrialization and engineering and, and from including sort of military, so, you know, civil engineering and social engineering. And they still held on to sort of old-fashioned masculine views about politics and what for that they um, um, their idea of transforming the country was much more physical, much more you know bricks and mortar and and, and bridges and you know sort of Ron Burgundy talking about what men do. Um, um, and by the time you get to the Great Society, it's much more psychologized. You're 15 years past the Holocaust. You've had this explosion of psychologization of American life, where for a while people were talking about essentially psychology being the new American religion. Um, it was uh, the, the, the baby boomers were still obviously very young, but they were starting to have a sort of social influence on their parents. Um, and, it was, and of course, you have the civil rights stuff and you have all of the, the, the spin and distortions that come out from the Kennedy assassination about hate versus all, all that. And so um, in some ways, the Great Society, I think, was more about virtue signaling um, than it was about, you know, changing changing society through our, the brawn of men kind of stuff. I mean, that's what the, go, go visit the Hoover Dam and look at the art of the Hoover Dam. That was a very much a New Deal project. Um, and uh, um, and I, so anyway, I think psychologically and culturally, contextually, there's a huge difference between the New Deal and the Great Society. And that's a perfectly fine point. But what they share is this in, invincible faith in their own expertise to simply create um, the world they want, uh, like, you know, as if it comes from the forehead of Jupiter. Um, and fun fact, the, the neoconservatives that I admire so much and talk about so much were largely refugees from both forms of American liberalism. They were liberals or socialists born into, born or who grew up with great sympathy for either the New Deal project or the, um, or the Great Society project, and then realized the, uh, the limits of policy to transform society in the image to the image that they wanted. Anyway, and I'm truly rambling. Probably guess I'm trying to avoid like learning up on all the poll numbers for midterms for this talk. Thank you all for listening, and um, so excited about the news that Kevin is here. The last time we. Did this remnant, we had to keep it a secret, but Kevin Williamson has uh, has, has entered the building and um, we're very excited about it. We're also really excited about having Nick. Um, Katagio, I gotta get I gotta get clarity. Is it Katagio or Katogio? Because he keeps saying Katogio. 
Um, and um, hopefully we'll get them on the remnant soon to clarify this. And uh, I'll see you next time. Or I'll talk to you next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.